Welcome to the ACO Show, a podcast exploring the growing world of value-based healthcare. Today, you'll hear our interview with Rachel Rubine, a Washington, D.C.-based healthcare reporter for Political Pro. Her work focuses on issues that include healthcare law, the opioid crisis, and surprise medical billing. She talks with Allidade's Joe Schonkweiler and Josh Israel about the issues getting the most attention on Capitol Hill right now. Here it is. Welcome to the ACO Show. We're very glad to welcome Rachel Rubine today, a healthcare reporter from Politico. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. You know, we there are so many things that we want to talk about with you and that we can't talk about, but I wanted to start off with something that I think folks around the country are thinking about, even two years into a new administration. Uh, what do you see as the big shifts for folks working in a value-based care space with a new administration coming on board and then even changes within that administration? I think it's really important to kind of start and look at Tom Price, who rolled back some mandatory initiatives at the CMS Innovation Center, and then to Alex Azar, where value-based care is one of his top four priorities. It's really important to him and now the rest of HHS, and to look at his other top priorities, they'd be the opioid crisis, drug pricing, health insurance reforms. So value-based care is really up there, and the administration is now putting an emphasis on really rolling out more CMMI demos at the CMS Innovation Center. And so looking to that, as we mentioned, former Secretary Tom Price uh, moved to roll back some mandatory initiatives. And just as an example, HHS Secretary Alex Azar has said he might put out mandatory demos. He's not mm. going to shy away from that. And if that is going to help the administration kind of further test a hypothesis, get better data, they'll do it. Yeah, I've often thought knowing Tom Bryce and his staff a little bit uh, when I was on the Hill and uh, his perspective when he was in Congress. He's very much a surgical specialist in his mindset about what the mandatory rule should be and uh, was not shy about that. So when I think about it, at least, I think about it in, as you do, it sounds like a, a, a pre and post price world for value-based care initiatives at HHS. Yeah, and then you think of um, Adam Buller, who heads the CMS Innovation Center, and he comes from a startup background. So, you know, he kind of came out there, started being on the conference circuit saying we want to blow up Medicare fee-for-service, we want providers to move to risk quicker than they're doing so, so that's also just a whole different shift in mindset there. You are a reporter for Politico. Uh, you know, this, this sort of material is very interesting for us who work here, so I'm happy to hear that it seems to have a broader audience as well. Uh, why of all the various things that Politico could cover, they have do they have a healthcare reporter? Is there a, a mass audience for these sorts of in-the-weeds topics? Sure there is. Um, this is something that affects the healthcare system at large, moving to value-based care, paying for services differently and trying to pay for quality over just sheer quantity. So it's something that impacts the whole health system. So I'd say we're definitely interested in that. Um, We also have insurance, public health, two pharma reporters, the list goes on. So we try and cover things 
in the weeds because policy it impacts politics and vice versa. Yeah, and I, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I am a an avid Politico reader. Uh, Rachel and I were just talking before we uh, started recording here that I uh, have read the Politico playbook, at least skimmed it, um, which is their daily politics newsletter, um, and very good um, for those who are in, folks who are interested. Pretty much every day since I want to say about 2009, they did a story in the New York Times about that being the one email that folks in the West Wing read every day. And I was still a surgical resident at the time at Columbia, and I signed up immediately, and I have read it religiously since and added Political Pulse and their e-health offering. So there's at least one devoted reader. <laughs> one of our room. most loyal readers. Yeah, and it was um, really, um, so I really see the interplay with politics and policy and then what happens out in the rest of the world outside the beltway and how it impacts providers and patients all over so um yeah not surprised that the team continues to grow and uh you will hopefully be in a job for a long time writing about this stuff now i know you've done some writing on value-based care is that because you were assigned to cover that in particular or is it because that seems to be the future of healthcare, and so that's why you're covering it I mean, as a, as a beat reporter, you talk to people all the time, that's part of your job, and go to conferences and hear what government officials and lawmakers are talking about, and value-based care is something that has come up for years, and it's increasingly coming up paying for services over quality, so I mean, I wouldn't, of course, you know, my editors want want me to cover it, but it's something that as a beat reporter, you want to cover what people are talking about, what the newest shifts are, trying to figure out, okay, this is where we are, but where are government officials trying to take the health system at large? What would you say is the split between uh, politics and policy when you approach a topic like this? Um, You know, you referenced this earlier with why this is such an important part of Politico's coverage. But just your own opinion, is it, um, is, does the politics always drive the policy? Is the, the policy uh, the bridge to the private sector with some of these things? Like, how are you, how do you think about that split if there is one? How I think about it as a reporter is, I mean, policy and politics, there's always going to be in interplay there. And I mean, in terms of the politics, it depends who, what party is in the administration sometimes, and then it depends who they choose as the leaders. So there's always going to be some sort of interplay. And then sort of in terms of Congress, I mean, it also depends what other health policy issues of the day are going on. I mean, in 2017, it was all Obamacare repeal all the time. And, you know, it's something that the healthcare industry was really focused on. I mean, lawmakers were really focused on, so, and Congress wasn't talking about value-based, value-based care. Um, So, I mean, it also depends the politics where the health policy movement is sometimes, too. So, I think you just need to think of them in tandem and how one shapes the other. Are you seeing more of an appetite for healthcare initiatives and legislation? When I was, I was on the uh, staff or on the Hill from 2012 to 2014, and we were so in the Obamacare fights then that people just had minimal appetite for anything we didn't have to do. So unless it was 
Medicare extenders, doc fix. There just was not, uh, you know, track and trace, like some of the, the very weedy opioid, uh, pharma uh, supply chain bills. There just wasn't an appetite to do anything interesting in healthcare beyond that. Um, are you seeing that lessen a bit? Well, right now in terms of possible bipartisanship, um, it's all about healthcare costs, transparency, ending surprise medical bills. Um, the House obviously is controlled by Democrats, so they've had some bills to strengthen the ACA. There's been two hearings on Medicare for All, but in terms of bipartisan movement, it's really all about healthcare costs and surprise medical bills right now. Right now, there are several different proposals in Congress. We have some proposals from rank and file members. We had Trump just a few weeks ago come out and put pressure on Congress to end surprise medical bills. Since then, there really has been a flurry of activity. There was a hearing in House Ways and Means. Senators Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray put out a bipartisan health bill. House ENC, sorry, that's Energy and Commerce Leaders, put out a draft. And Right now, there's a lot of different drafts out there, also one from a bipartisan Senate group, but how exactly to pay for the surprise medical bills is something that's really kind of not settled. It's definitely an industry food fight. There's definitely disputes over payment. Everybody agrees on the broad contours of a solution. We want to stop patients from getting unexpected high cost bills, but how to do it isn't hammered out yet. Where are you seeing the fault lines being drawn on that? Yeah, so providers tend to favor a solution that's called an arbitration approach. So there's a mediator. Um, Industries like health insurers, large employers don't like that approach. It's also looking at the reimbursement levels. Insurers, large employers would rather that would rather there be reimbursement tied to Medicare or median in-network rates. Providers would rather it be tied to actual charges, which are much higher. And so lawmakers are sort of trying to figure out how they're going to do it. And there are a bunch of different solutions that they've put out, but there, there is not one that's settled. What do you see is that is that going to roll up, you think, into the the next election in 2020? Or do you think we'll have pre-existing conditions, something else that's very... Are we going to relitigate aspects of the ACA in 2020, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, on surprise medical bills and the timeline there, um, lawmakers would like to get something done this summer. I mean, that's ambitious. We'll see if it happens. Um, I think 2020, you know, will play out more. Like you said, there'll be talk about Medicare for all, who favors Medicare for all. Republicans will talk about why they don't like it and they don't think that's the best way. I mean, I think then Democrats will talk about the repeal and replace efforts from Republicans that had projected millions of people to lose coverage. So we could start to see some of um, similar things that we saw in the last election there. You've done some reporting on Stark laws and kickbacks. Can you talk us through what those are and, and why those matter? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so the Stark Law is, kind of, is the physician self-referral law, and that as well as the anti-kickback statute are essentially were designed to try and prevent fraud and abuse in the system. Um, they were made decades ago, and the Trump administration has said that they want to change some of those rules so it is easier for providers to coordinate care and sort of this value-based care environment. These rules were kind of created in a fee-for-service world, and providers have said that's kind of prevented them from being able to coordinate with each other or provide some of the things to patients they would like to do because they don't want to violate these fraud and abuse laws. So the administration last summer announced that it was going to make some changes to those rules. Um, We haven't seen their proposals yet. They put out requests for information, so they've gathered feedback. The Trump administration's most recent regulatory agenda slated those proposed rules to come out in July, but I'll caveat that by that's those um, agendas are ambitious, so it doesn't mean it will actually come out in July. Hmm. Yeah, and I've seen um some proposals for you know broader exceptions for Stark that you could apply for if you're part of uh, one of these you know uh, value-based care organizations like an ACO and you were trying to coordinate across specialists or referral centers things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah there are, there are waivers for like the anti-kickback statute for you know CMMI demo projects to experiment with some of those things. So we've talked a bit about you know what is important politically, policy, um, transitions in the administration, and then uh, the timeliness of these things with things like uh, a surprise billing. But um, what else are you seeing, given that you follow this to the minute uh, with trying to break stories and and see what the latest developments are? So what other things should our audience be aware of as the most up-to-the-minute developing stories in, in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, if if you're looking on the Hill, I'd really look at surprise medical bills. I'd look at transparency. I would look at drug pricing to see what Congress can do. Um, There's a House House Democratic leadership has been working on some drug pricing proposals, so have committees. And that's another, we're talking about pocketbook issues. That's another big pocketbook issue. The administration has some rules that are, you know, could possibly drop, has proposed some rules that are pretty contentious in the drug pricing world. So we're, we're definitely keeping our eye on all that. A lot of our listeners um, are providers in ACOs or thinking about ACOs. And something that is timely that we've been talking about for years now are uh, is the opioid epidemic in this country. And I know you've written about that and have looked at that. What do you see as What's the trend in that in that world from a policy perspective or, or, or news making in the in the opioid space? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see. We saw bipartisanship on an opioid bill last year. We'll see if lawmakers decide to do more on that. Always interested to keep my eye on funding levels if there's more funding to the opioid epidemic. Rachel, you have been covering healthcare for a while and at a variety of uh, sources from more local, state-based, all the way into the national level. And I'm curious, over that time period, what are the big changes that you've seen? Like, what does that arc look like? Yeah, I mean, I think... 
when I started covering healthcare, at least at the local level, that was right when the Affordable Care Act exchanges were opening. So more people were getting coverage. Um, At the local level, I was seeing a big increase in prescription deaths and then heroin deaths. Um, And then sort of moving from politics or moving from the local level to national politics it in terms of I guess first the opioid epidemic it, it took several years from what I was seeing on the ground level in 2013 to then become a national conversation mm-hmm. um, and then obviously we've seen on Obamacare we've seen it become more entrenched in the sense of for years it was it's going to be repealed and placed it for Republicans win Congress in the White House, and that didn't happen. So you've watched Obamacare become entrenched, and then now you have major presidential candidates who are signing on to Medicare for all when, you know, you didn't see that in the last presidential election. You saw Senator Bernie Sanders champion it, but when he put out his bill in, I believe it was 2013, he didn't have co-sponsors to it, and now he has most um, 2020 Senate Democratic candidates. Yeah, that's really that's a great point. I I hadn't even thought about the Medicare for All as a bookend to that. If we're you know thinking of today um, in this current political climate, and you know we are a company that starts and helps providers run um, accountable care organizations. Anything in particular you've looked at in that space? Um, mainly following the Medicare Shared Savings Program mm-hmm. rule, um, which dropped, I think, at, on my maybe third day at Politico. Nice. Um, I had been covering healthcare before, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that was interesting to watch just all of the comments on it and what sort of changes the administration did make in the, in the final rule, kind of upping up some of the um, the potential savings there. So definitely following that, I'm going to continue just to follow what participation, particularly looking at new entrants yeah. for that. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on in, and we look forward to following your writing. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Rachel.